Welcome to Raising Celiac, a podcast dedicated to raising the standard of education, awareness, and research on celiac disease and related autoimmune conditions. I'm Vanessa Weisbrod, the Education Director of the Celiac Program at Boston Children's Hospital, and each month on the podcast, we will invite leading experts to dive into a condition related to celiac and look at how it impacts a patient family, the latest research, and offers suggestions for health providers to manage these complex cases. Every episode of the Raising Celiac podcast is accredited by the Boston Children's Hospital Continuing Education Department for 0.5 AMA PRA Category 1 credits for physicians, 0.5 contact hours for nurses, 0.5 ACE CE Continuing Education credits for social workers, and 0.5 CEUs for registered dietitians. To claim your credits for listening to today's episode, please visit dme.childrenshospital.org slash Raising Celiac. Let's get started with this month's Raising Celiac patient story. Peter was a pretty normal toddler. He giggled all the time, played joyfully with his family and friends, and loved every food his mom put in front of him, especially avocados, broccoli, and snickerdoodle cookies. His mom lovingly referred to him as her chubby little munchkin until just before his third birthday when he seemed to thin out all around but not get any taller. His preschool class photo came in, and he was a full head shorter than the other kids in the class, despite being one of the oldest. Something had to be up, right? Celiac disease is a chronic genetic autoimmune condition that can affect any system of the body. The only treatment is a lifelong gluten-free diet. In people with celiac disease, gluten damages the lining of the intestines. This can prevent them from absorbing important nutrients from food and cause a variety of symptoms like abdominal pain, nausea, diarrhea, vomiting, fatigue, weight loss, mouth ulcers, and growth issues, to name a few. Peter's parents took him to the pediatrician. One of the first tests they ran was for celiac disease. It was positive. Peter's parents were both surprised and not surprised at the same time. They were aware of this condition because Peter's grandmother also had celiac disease, though her main symptoms were diarrhea and vomiting. She never had issues growing. How could Peter have the same disease but not obviously react when eating the foods that made grandma so physically ill? Celiac disease can affect patients in very different ways. Some might have very obvious physical symptoms, while others may be more subtle or even none at all. Regardless of the symptoms, the reaction in the body is the same. When food enters the stomach, it's broken down into tiny digestible particles, which then travel through the small intestine. The small intestine is lined with villi, tiny finger-like projections that absorb nutrients from the food passing through. In celiac disease, gluten damages the intestines and causes the villi to break down, leaving a smooth lining that can no longer absorb nutrients. As Peter's parents dove into researching everything about celiac disease, they quickly learned that the rest of the family needed to be tested and that symptoms could impact any system of the body. Peter's dad had spent his entire life with crippling neuropathy in his hands and feet. He also tested positive for celiac disease. Then, a few months later, his aunt tested positive after seeing a dermatologist for a blistery rash on her elbows and knees. Oddly enough, Peter's cousin also tested positive for celiac disease, but had no distinguishable symptoms and was only tested because he also had type 1 diabetes. Were all of these differing symptoms really related to eating gluten? And is celiac really so common that several family members all have it? Not to give it all away, but the answer is yes. All of these different symptoms, and many more, can be related to gluten. 
As Peter's family quickly learned, celiac disease is far from uncommon. An estimated 1% of people in North America are affected by this autoimmune disease, typically more girls than boys, and many are undiagnosed. And celiac is also closely related to many other chronic diseases, including type 1 diabetes and thyroid disease. So, this season on Raising Celiac, we're going to explore why. We'll talk to experts across the United States and around the world to discuss why celiac disease is so complicated and how better understanding it may be the key to learning more about other autoimmune conditions. So, let's start Raising Celiac. Today, we talk about the history of celiac disease with Dr. Dasha Weir, the clinical director of the Celiac Disease Program at Boston Children's Hospital. Dr. Weir first became interested in celiac disease during her medical training and is now a board-certified pediatric gastroenterologist with expertise in celiac disease in children. Dr. Weir's recent research has focused on non-responsive celiac disease in children, and she is a champion for supporting food-insecure families with celiac disease. Dr. Weir sits on the executive committee of the Harvard Medical School Celiac Research Program and the board of the Celiac Kids Connection. Welcome, Dr. Weir, to Raising Celiac. Thank you so much for having me. It's really a pleasure to be here. So before we talk more about Peter's family story, I want to talk about the history of celiac disease. When and how was it discovered? Celiac disease is not a new thing, even though many of us have only just started to hear about it more regularly. It actually was first described by a physician back in the Roman times around 100 to 200 AD. He described patients who had problems with digestion and absorption and actually called it celiac affection at that point in time. Celiac is actually from the Greek word belly, which makes reference to one of the classical symptoms that we sometimes see with celiac disease of the big distended belly. So it really does go way back. And then it was mentioned in the medical literature as far back as the 1600s and through the 1800s and the early 1900s, European, British, and American physicians identified and discussed celiac disease and trialed various dietary treatments without the understanding that gluten was triggering celiac disease, which is really interesting to look back at how that piece was fit in to understand celiac disease. In 1920s, there was an American physician named Dr. Haas, and he noticed in Puerto Rico that In the city where people ate bread, there was more suffering of celiac disease, while the farmers who lived in the country and mostly ate bananas rarely suffered from celiac disease. And he made that observation and decided that the key to treating celiac disease was bananas. He did not pick up that the gluten, perhaps it was the absence of gluten that was really the key there. And he really developed a banana-based diet that did have some success in treating kids with celiac disease back in the early 1900s. So it's just kind of interesting because he really was prescribing the diet without realizing exactly what he was doing. That's so interesting. Yeah, I thought it was really interesting. And they call people who had celiac disease in that era and survived banana babies, actually. It wasn't until after World War II when the connection was made between celiac disease and the trigger of gluten of ingested gluten. And there was a Dutch pediatrician whose name was Willem Carl Dickey, who observed that during the war, when there was no bread available, that Dutch children with celiac disease got better and that they were not dying 
And he really noticed that there was this big improvement in kids with celiac disease. And then when the bread returned, they started getting sick again. And that really helped him make that connection, which was obviously a huge breakthrough in the treatment of celiac disease. And that advancement was in the 1950s when we started being able to do small bowel biopsies. And that really paved the way for us to be able to confirm celiac disease by the characteristic inflammation and damage that we see when someone with celiac disease is consuming gluten. And then the last piece was the advent of serologic tests. So TTG IgA is a blood test that we have that we really rely on a lot to help us figure out who has celiac disease. And that was really only recognized as a marker of celiac disease in 1997. So that was another really big step that helped us understand celiac disease and recognize celiac disease much better than we had done previously. It's been amazing to see over the last, you know, 20 years how much we've learned and how far our community has come. It really is amazing, isn't it? Absolutely. So as we heard from Peter's family, celiac disease affects people in many ways. If there are so many symptoms, how can doctors know when the right time is to screen for celiac? Should they always just be testing no matter what the ailment is? It's a really good question because you're right. The range of how people show up with celiac disease is so broad. There are so many different ways people can show us that they have celiac disease. And what's really tricky about it is some of those symptoms are really common symptoms of being human, you know, and they're not always linked to celiac disease. And so it can be really tricky to figure out who to screen. There's really two groups that we think about who need screening. One are people who have a variety of symptoms, you know, including gastrointestinal symptoms, growth issues, and many, many other symptoms, as we've sort of outlined in in Peter's case. I think we should have a really low threshold to sending blood work to look for celiac disease. So there's another group, though, that we also need to think about, and that's kids that are high risk. If you have a first-degree family member with celiac disease, for example, or you have another disorder like an autoimmune disease such as thyroid disease or type 1 diabetes, your risk of having celiac disease is higher than the average population. And so we should be thinking as a medical community about actively screening those patients as well. Can you tell our listeners what some of the more common symptoms of celiac disease are? Yes. Some of the common symptoms that we see in celiac disease are gastrointestinal symptoms like abdominal pain, nausea. Some people will have changes in stool and it doesn't just have to be diarrhea. It can also be constipation. Another big way that we see children presenting with celiac disease is not growing well. And that might be that their linear growth, their height is stunted and that they have something that we call short stature. Or it might be that they are not gaining weight well or are actually losing weight. Those symptoms in kids are red flags, that there is something going on in the body. And it turns out that celiac disease is the very major cause of those symptoms in kids. But there's other non-GI symptoms that are relatively common. Iron deficiency anemia is another big one that can be a sign of celiac disease. And fatigue is another one that I actually see quite a lot of. So is it really possible to have no symptoms at all, but still test positive for celiac? Yes, it is. So we keep track of the diagnoses of celiac disease in our program, and we've been doing that since you know 2001. And when we look at the numbers of kids that we've diagnosed, we see that a little bit under 10% of patients don't have identifiable symptoms before the diagnosis, which is really surprising to families when they find themselves you know, thinking about this diagnosis in a kid that they really were not worried about prior to the blood test that was sent. But one of the things that I think is really interesting is that I 
over the years have become a little more reluctant to calling that asymptomatic celiac disease because I've had so many experiences where kids, we've identified that they have celiac disease, they go on a gluten-free diet, they come back for follow-up, and there is something that's better that they hadn't identified beforehand as off. Often it's, oh, my kid has so much more energy. Or sometimes kids will verbalize like, I did have abdominal pain and now it's gone. I think kids are so resilient that I think sometimes they don't realize that they have a symptom until it's not there, or they don't realize that a symptom might not be normal that everybody else feels until it's not there. So I hesitate a little bit to use asymptomatic, the asymptomatic label on patients, but I can tell you that there are absolutely people who do not have symptoms and do not feel better on a gluten-free diet. And it can be a hard thing for families and patients to wrap their heads around. So let's say you have a patient who is seemingly asymptomatic or, you know, doesn't have any obvious noticeable symptoms to themselves and they go on the gluten-free diet and they're not feeling better. Why should they stick to that gluten-free diet? There are a lot of good reasons to treat celiac disease, even if you don't have symptoms. Obviously, if you have symptoms, that's a really big motivating factor to everybody. But if you don't have symptoms, you still have the inflammation and damage in your intestine. And long-term inflammation in your intestinal tract is not a healthy thing. It can predispose you to nutritional deficiencies, which can have health effects, including bone density problems and osteopenia or osteoporosis, which is like a lack of bone density and weak bones. It can also lead to things like infertility. And there are descriptions in adults with untreated celiac disease who have certain malignancies of the small intestine, which are associated with untreated celiac disease. So the stakes are really high. The other piece that is particularly relevant to the like children and the pediatric population is growth. You know, kids may not grow to their full potential. And when they hit their growth spurt, they may not grow as tall as they should be, and they won't realize it until it's too late. So that's another big reason to treat. All very good reasons. We think so. (laughs) We're going to take a quick break to hear from our podcast sponsor, the Global Autoimmune Institute. The Global Autoimmune Institute works to empower solutions in the diagnosis and treatment of autoimmune diseases through research, education, and awareness while supporting multidisciplinary approaches to health. We are thrilled to support the production of this educational podcast. Welcome back. So Dr. Weir, we hear all the time that it can take years for a patient to be correctly diagnosed with celiac disease. Why does it take so long in some cases? I think a lot of this is because of the variety of how patients show up with celiac disease. And sometimes the symptoms can be very subtle or the symptoms can be atypical. I think a lot of people in the medical field and outside of the medical field know about the classic presentation of celiac disease, the young child who has failure to thrive, a big swollen belly, might be throwing up or having diarrhea, tend to get diagnosed very quickly. But what is actually more common is to be less dramatic and to be older. So in our program, the average age of diagnosis is about 10. And these patients may have some abdominal pain, they may have some fatigue. And like I referenced before, a lot of these symptoms are very frequent symptoms of childhood and of adolescence and can be explained away for other reasons, either by the family and not coming to present for care, you know, not asking for help and sorting out the the symptoms, but also the physicians may not think to send the celiac testing, the celiac serology testing. 
I think that the reason why it takes so long or historically why it has taken so long is because it can be complicated and tricky. And I don't think it's always been on everybody's radar to think about it in those more subtle cases. I like to think that we've gotten better through the years in identifying it, but I think there are still people who have symptoms for longer than they should before we figure it out. So just so we're setting the record straight, can you tell our listeners what are the correct tests for celiac disease and what would you see on those tests come back where the pediatrician should refer to a gastroenterologist? Absolutely. Our best blood test is something called tissue transglutaminase which is a mouthful, IgA. We call it TTG-IgA for short, sure, sort of a short way to say it. So that test is a really helpful test when you're worried about someone having celiac disease. And we recommend sending it with a total IgA. So immunoglobulin A is one of the components of our immune system, and it's a building block of the antibodies. And so you need to have enough IgA in your body in order to make the TTG IgA antibody that we see with celiac disease. And what's interesting is that patients with celiac disease have a higher risk of having something called an IgA deficiency where your body doesn't make enough of that immunoglobulin. And so you need to know if that person has enough IgA to have a positive test. So it's really important to send the TTG IgA and the total IgA. Now, if someone doesn't have enough IgA, there are other tests that we can send. And the best test is something called the deaminated glade and peptide IgG. And that's a really good test to send in someone who doesn't have enough IgA to mount a positive response. So if they have a negative TTG level, but only a positive IgA, would they still be referred to gastroenterology? They probably would be, yes. Like you're referencing, there are other tests that can be sent looking for celiac disease, and some of them are better than others, you know. I think the bottom line is that some of the tests that are out there are not as good But if they're positive, they're really hard to ignore. And we know that celiac disease doesn't always follow the rules. And sometimes we have people with celiac disease who don't have the typical blood test positive, you know. So if there's something that doesn't seem right, whether that's a lab, whether that's an IgG-based lab, or something about your patient, even if the blood work comes back for celiac disease and it's normal, if you're worried about that kid, most gastroenterologists will be happy to see them and to help sort it out because we know that sometimes celiac disease can be difficult to diagnose. So the biopsy is something that happens once they get to the gastroenterologist, but it's not something that all parents are comfortable with, especially now that there's more knowledge about the European guidelines that aren't always requiring the biopsy for diagnosis. Can you talk about how gastroenterologists evaluate if a biopsy is the right choice for a patient? Of course. This is another conversation we have a lot with our families and our patients. We're lucky that we have the European guidelines that outline a subset of patients with celiac disease who might not need the biopsies because that has given us a lot of flexibility in how we make the diagnosis. But the gold standard or what we have always thought of as sort of the gold standard or the best way to diagnose celiac disease is with biopsies. And There's a good reason for that. It is a very clear way of knowing if somebody has celiac disease because we know the blood work isn't right 100%. So I think there's a lot of value to getting small bowel biopsies to really know where you're starting. There is data that shows kids who have biopsy-confirmed disease do better long-term on the diet. I think that that is true in some cases. I have other patients who have not been biopsy-confirmed who do beautifully on the diet. 
So that piece isn't a big convincing factor to me, but it is something that I mentioned to families. The other piece is that by having biopsy confirmed disease, I think it opens doors for you in the future in terms of being facilitating involvement in future clinical trials or having access to new medications that we hope or treatments that will, will come out to treat celiac disease. So I think that we sort of go through the reasons why biopsies are helpful, but we also discuss the serologic guidelines if somebody does fit into that. And there are some kids who a biopsy is not the right choice. You know, some families have already put their child on a gluten-free diet. And, and if you do the biopsies on a gluten-free diet, you don't get a good answer. So if someone's already on a gluten-free diet and feeling a lot better, it can, the idea of going back on gluten for biopsies can be very difficult. So that might be a patient that you would not do the biopsies. And there's some patients who have medical concerns that make the sedation and the procedure itself more dangerous. And so that's sort of how we break it down. And in the end, it comes down to shared decision-making between the patient, their family, and us, you know, and deciding what the next best step is. So we can't leave celiac testing without at least touching on genetics. Does a positive genetic test mean that they have celiac disease or will get celiac disease? No, it's a great question. So there are genetic tests for other diseases where if you have this gene, you will in your lifetime develop this disease. That is not what we have currently for celiac disease. So when you look across the population, about 40% of people will have one of the HLA markers that we see with celiac disease, either DQ2 or DQ8. That's a lot of people. We know there's a lot of celiac disease out there, but it is certainly not 40% of the population. Our estimate is about 1% of the population has celiac disease. Interestingly, if you take that group of people who have one of those HLA markers, only about 4% of them develop celiac disease in their lifetime. So certainly having one of those markers makes your risk higher of developing celiac disease, but it is not a slam dunk diagnosis. And if you get a little more complicated, there are certain patterns of HLA typing that can happen that give you even higher risk. So it is a helpful piece of information, but it does not seal the deal of the celiac diagnosis. So we know that a gluten-free diet eliminating all forms of wheat, rye, and barley is the only treatment for celiac disease. What is the best way for a patient family to learn how to adapt to this lifelong diet change? It can be a complicated diet. We highly recommend that patients see a specialized dietitian who understands the gluten-free diet to really learn the nitty-gritty details about where you need to be careful and where you don't need to be careful. I think that is one of the most important steps that patients can do for themselves when they get the diagnosis of celiac disease. I think you need some education from a specialized dietitian, and then you need to just plow forward and practice and perfect your label reading skills. So let's switch gears and talk about related conditions. You touched on this a little bit in the beginning, but I want to talk about it in more depth. We know there are a lot of other autoimmune diseases that are related to celiac. What are the most common? There's so many different autoimmune diseases. And I, you know, we see patients with celiac disease with many other things like psoriasis or inflammatory bowel disease. But I think the most common are diabetes and thyroiditis. So should someone who's newly diagnosed with celiac disease be tested at the point of diagnosis for these coexisting conditions or when is the right time to test? That's a great question. So certainly when we make the diagnosis of celiac disease, if someone is having other symptoms that point towards another disorder, like an autoimmune thyroid condition or an autoimmune skin condition or diabetes, certainly we would do testing and evaluation at that point in time. And 
it's interesting. There are some of these autoimmune diseases that we can screen for with a blood test. Like it's very easy to test someone's thyroid function by a blood test. But some of the other autoimmune diseases, they're not as easy to screen for. And it's really more of a clinical diagnosis. But we do absolutely recommend screening patients either with blood work or with close, careful clinical monitoring by asking questions and, and seeing how they're doing. Absolutely. And we do that from the moment they're diagnosed. And importantly, we recommend continuing to do that through the years on a gluten-free diet. Is this something that you would test for at every annual follow-up visit? Yes, depending on the family histories. Otherwise, you would do it certainly within the first year of diagnosis and then maybe every other year, depending on your level of concern. Is there a way to prevent developing a related condition or predicting if someone will get one? Not yet, but we're really hopeful that we'll have the science to be able to better predict that. And certainly if we're able to prevent it, that would be amazing. And I look forward to that day, but right now, no. The best thing that we can do is to address the celiac disease, treat the celiac disease, heal the intestine, and try to promote health in every way possible to prevent other diseases. But we don't have a specific way of preventing autoimmune disease at this time. Well, thank you, Dr. Weir, so much for all of the wisdom you have shared today. This is really going to tee up the rest of the season of our podcast so nicely as we talk more about celiac disease and all of these different conditions that are related to it. So now let's find out where Peter and his family are today. It's been almost seven years since Peter was diagnosed with celiac disease. Today, he is a thriving fourth grader, one of the tallest in his class. He's an active member of the Celiac Kids Connection at Boston Children's Hospital and loves attending gluten-free cooking classes. Gluten-free spaghetti with bolognese and tacos are his favorite foods. His family has rallied together and adapted to gluten-free life. Vacations look a little different. They do lots of research in advance, but always find great food in the destinations they visit. In Peter's words, I don't mind being gluten-free. It makes me healthy and special. Thanks for listening to this episode of Raising Celiac. A special thanks to the generous contribution from the Global Autoimmune Institute to make this podcast possible. A reminder to all physicians, nurses, social workers, and dietitians to claim your continuing education credits for listening to today's episode, please visit dme.childrenshospital.org slash Raising Celiac and complete the short survey attached to this episode. If you like what you heard, be sure to write a review, like, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. For more information, check us out on social at at Boston Children's Celiac on TikTok, at Children's Celiac on Twitter, or at Celiac Kids Connection on Instagram. Join us next month when we discuss the relationship between celiac disease and inflammatory bowel disease with Dr. Inez Pinto-Sanchez from McMaster University in Hamilton Health Sciences. Have a great month!